Father, we thank you for our country. We thank you for the freedom to meet today. And we thank you for the fact that even though we have these privileges, our hope is not in a flag. Our hope is not in a constitution. Our hope is in your eternal word. And what you have said is the end is near. But for those in Christ, we have an an inheritance that is imperishable and undefiled and never fading away. And so we thank you for that. And we thank you today for another opportunity to come to hear your word, to hear you speak. Because we don't live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. And we have to come to you to be fed. And that's why we're here. You are the giver of life. You are the one who gives us our sustenance. And so we ask, Lord, that you might feed us now. Sanctify our hearts. We pray you'll be glorified in how this word is preached and how it's received. We pray, Lord, for faithful and obedient responses to your word. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, uh, beloved, go ahead and turn with me. We enter into another chapter of Luke's Gospel today, Luke 16. We spent some quality time on the parable of the prodigal son. I uh, had a chance to open that word up to uh, Red Branch Baptist Church this week, and I appreciate your prayers as I was able to do that. But uh, as we were going through chapter 15, we saw this one overarching truth, and it's that this man, Jesus, receives sinners. And that there's joy in heaven when even one sinner repents, when even one sinner humbly comes to the Father. And uh, we're about a month removed from that here, but we're ready to continue in Luke, continue pursuing the exact truth about the things we've been taught about Jesus. Now, uh, I haven't gone through and counted for myself, but one of the, the, the people I read this week who I trust states that of almost 40 parables that Jesus teaches in the Gospels, a third of them have to do with money. Which on the one hand, you're like, whoa, that's a lot to talk about money. But really, that shouldn't surprise us because no matter when we've lived or what culture we've been in, ever since the Garden of Eden, money has been an important part of the culture. Uh, In fact, you could argue that Adam and Eve's desire for more than what God provided was their downfall was the fall. Money is a huge part of our lives. We think about how to get it, how to keep it, how to spend it, how to borrow it, how to get more of it, how to give it. Money dominates the world. It dominates the world so much that we have come to talk about the almighty dollar sometimes rather than almighty God. Well, our politics, our entertainment, our sports, uh, we're hard-pressed to think of any facet of our lives that isn't heavily influenced, if not dominated, by money, by stuff, by, 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 by all of this. And in fact, it's interesting that after the parable of the prodigal son in which money, an estate, plays a very significant role that Jesus, again, talks about it in chapter 16. And this parable that we're about to read, it's not directed at the Pharisees, it's not directed at the scribes, but now he is talking to the disciples. He's talking to people who believe in him. He's talking to people who have placed their trust in him, who are walking with him, who are following him. And we do well to take heed this morning because I hope that's us. So let's read. Let's start in verse 1. We're going to go down to verse 
13, but we're going to start just by looking at the first seven verses, for seven or eight. Now, he was also saying to the disciples, there was a rich man who had a manager, and this manager was reported to him as squandering his possessions, and he called him and said to him, what is this I hear about you? Give an accounting of your management, for you can no longer be manager. The manager said to himself, What shall I do since my master is taking the management away from me? I am not strong enough to dig. I am ashamed to beg. I know what I shall do, so that when I am removed from the management, people will welcome me into their homes. And he summoned each, of, each one of his master's debtors, and he began saying to the first, How much do you owe my master? And he said, A hundred measures of oil. And he said to him, Take your bill and sit down quickly and write fifty. Then he said to another, And how much do you owe? And he said, A hundred measures of wheat. He said to him, Take your bill and write eighty. So there's the parable, but now comes the punchline. Look at verse 8. And his master praised the unrighteous steward because he had acted shrewdly. He praised the unrighteous steward because he acted Shrewdly. Now, we've seen Jesus say some surprising things before. In fact, uh, you know, let me just mention a couple of them. You have to love, you have to, you have to hate your, your father and mother. You have to hate your family in comparison to how you love me. That's a pretty shocking thing to say. It uh, will be more tolerable for Sodom and Gomorrah than for Tyre and Sidon and for for Bethsaida on that day of judgment. We've seen him say things like that. The parable of the prodigal son, we just saw that. And and if you were with us for those weeks that we were just slogging our way through that, we saw that each progressive shoe to drop in that story was really designed by Jesus to shock and surprise the scribes and Pharisees, the religious people who were listening to him. And now here is Jesus... He's speaking with his own, his disciples. And we see, you know, he had a knack for surprising them too. Because he's praising someone who is unrighteous. Is that what, that's what Jesus seems to be doing here. Is that what Jesus is doing here? Because don't we understand that God has always called us, no matter what we've been given, to be good stewards of what we've been given? And, and that's one of the hardest things to do in this life, but we've been called to always be good stewards. It is required of a steward that he be found faithful, is what Paul writes. So what kind of positive lesson was Jesus' disciples, what kind of lesson were they supposed to learn from an unrighteous manager? And to that end, what does the Lord desire for you and me to understand out of this this morning? Well, it's not the easiest passage to figure out. Um... In fact, in, in my studies, what others have uh, uh, written about a particular text, I will often consult what others have written about a particular text. Now, I do that for a number of reasons. First of all, it's because there's people who are smarter than me. So I, I go to... to I, first thing I do is I read the, the text for myself and I try to see what's going on. But then... Later on in, in, in the week, later on as I'm getting ready, I will go and see what others have said because have they seen something that I've missed? Maybe they have an additional insight that, that I haven't thought about yet. 
Maybe I have some ideas about this text that I need to bounce off of what people who have gone before me have written. Am I way out of bounds in what I think is going on here? I think it's always good to do that when you're studying the Bible, to, 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 to consult things like that. And in this case, the commentaries I've come to trust the most on Luke, the ones that have been the most helpful to me in, in bringing these sermons to you, one of them is from the 19th century pastor named J.C. Ryle. He was in England. And I just got a kick out of his first words in dealing with his parable. He just wrote, this is a difficult passage. Well, yeah, it is. This is a difficult passage. And he goes on to say, if we learn nothing else from the passage before us, let us learn humility, which I thought was wise, because we definitely need to learn humility. But I don't think that's all we can or need to take away from what Jesus is saying here. So let's dig into this parable a little bit. The first thing we learn in this parable is there was a rich man, a wealthy man, a man who had means. A man who had enough so that he hired a manager to watch over, to administer his business affairs. The, the rich man was owed debts by many people, people he did business with. So the manager... Uh, this steward would have had a great responsibility. In fact, the amount of the debts in these... The, the, the debts, not the depths. The amount of debts in these verses, we're going to get into a little bit more in a minute, but in, this is not small business loans. The, the, this, the, these were not small debts in any uh, way, shape, or form. So this was a very rich man that Jesus was introducing to us. But immediately we learn this manager that he has entrusted his affairs to was someone he should not have entrusted his affairs to. Because it's reported to the rich man that his manager squandered his possessions. Squandered. Now we've seen that word squandered recently in Luke, the parable of the prodigal son. He squandered his share of the estate. Uh, he did so on loose living. The manager here squanders his boss's possessions on loose management and on who knows what. We're not told specifically what he did, but we can infer several things. We can infer that he embezzled money. We can infer maybe that he made unwise investments. That he, uh, well, he could have done any number of things. I guess it doesn't do a whole lot of good to speculate and speculate and speculate. The bottom line is, he did his boss wrong. He did hit the, the, the manager did the rich man his master, his boss, wrong. And so someone sees this and someone reports to him. That word reported is the verb form of diabolos. And if you know any Spanish, you know that the word diablo means what? Devil. That word diabolos means slander, accuse. And that's what this is talking about. This man was accused to his master. And so the master says, the rich man says, what is this I hear about you? Give me an accounting of your management, for you can no longer be manager. So he fired him. He fired him. He had just cause. He fired him. The manager squandered the rich man's possessions, so he was fired. Makes sense. That said, the manager was allowed to remain on until he was able to give a final accounting of what he had done. And, and so here is where we see evidence that the unrighteous steward isn't unrighteous because he made mistakes, but because of conscious decisions that he made. He made conscious decisions to do his master wrong. He says, what shall I do? 
We see that often in Luke. What shall I do? Someone will ask. We see it in chapter 3. We see it in chapter 12. We'll see it again in, in Acts 2. Luke wrote Acts. Okay, What shall I do? Since my master, the Greek word for Lord, kurios, what shall I do since my master is taking the management away from me? Because he knows he's lost his job. Uh, he knows my life is about to change in a big way. So he begins looking at what life is going to be like without his job, without his prestigious position, without control over that which he now has control over. I'm not strong enough to dig. He says. We'd call him a, a white-collar worker today. And he knew he was a white-collar worker. He, he didn't consider himself capable, for whatever reason, of manual labor. He probably just thought it was beneath him. Maybe he thought he was more dignified than to subject himself to a shovel. He, he's not capable of digging. I'm ashamed to beg, he then said. Of course, if actual work was beneath him, so would begging be. So looking at his prospects for the future, it looks dark. It looks bleak ahead of where this guy is. But then, you know, it's like the cartoon where the, the light bulb goes off. He has this aha moment. I know what I shall do. So that when I am removed from the management, people will welcome me into their homes. Because he was going to need a place to live. He was going to need food to eat. He was going to have to have some place to go. So who are, who are they? Who are the people he's talking about here? He summoned each one, verse 5, each one of his master's debtors. Now, he was supposed to be giving a final account of his master's business. He was supposed to be getting things in order, I guess presumably for the next guy, and then leaving. But instead, what, he did, what does he do? He embarks on a new scheme. A new scheme for himself, for, for food, for shelter, for income, for status, for, for, to preserve his way of life. And he decides he will use each of those who owe his master to do it. Now, debts in that culture, uh, particularly if they were related to agriculture, and again, again this is an agrarian society, first century uh, Israel, uh, an agrarian society, debts are usually paid off when? They're paid off at harvest time. Which makes sense because harvest time is where is, is the time of year where people have means by which to pay their debts. Makes sense. People working the land would have what they need. So the manager gets this idea to go to each debtor and give them a big discount on what they owe their master. Write off part of their debt so they don't have to pay as much. And then, because he's doing that for them they're going to feel obligated to me. So that's his idea. That's his plan. Because the manager knew that in his culture, reciprocation was a big deal. You know, Jesus himself says, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. If somebody does something for you, you, you do something for them. It was the right thing to do. So if he could get his master's debtors, if he could reduce their debts, then he would have all of them feeling obligated to do things for him. So then he'd be taken care of. Quite the plan. Never mind, though, his resources were not his own. Never mind, they were his master's. He'd, he'd only been entrusted with them. He'd only been charged with the responsibility to use them in a way to benefit the master, and he had failed miserably at that. But instead of 
being sorry, instead of being repentant, he goes into I'm going to protect myself mode. He's all about himself. How can he make his way better in the world? And, and he's going to do it. So we get two examples of how this worked. You get the sense there were more like this, but he began saying to the first, How much do you owe my master? And he said, A hundred measures of oil. And he said to him, Take your bill and sit down quickly and write fifty. Now, just to kind of put that into terms we can understand, a hundred measures of olive oil was about 875 gallons, or about what 150 olive trees would produce. And that oil would be worth something like a 1,000 denarii, which was more than three years' wages for a common laborer. A denarii was roughly a day's wage for a common laborer. So this is not a small debt. We're talking about over three years' worth of of. of money for some for a common laborer. No no small debt, this was a big deal. The manager was cutting the debt in half. A significant break for the one who owed and a significant loss for the master. The second debtor is much the same. A hundred measures of wheat cut twenty percent down to eighty. About a thousand bushels of wheat, about a hundred acres to produce that wheat, and the value of which, as as I understand it in and again, I'm not a farmer, so maybe someone can correct me if, if what I've read is wrong, but that would be about 8 to 10 years worth of labor. What's being described here, about 8 to 10 years worth of labor being cut down. Years. That's what was owed, now cut by 20%. And for the one who owed, great. But the manager here is defrauding his master the one whose interest he is supposed to be putting first. But again, he, he was putting himself first. He, he wasn't doing this to be nice to the people who owed. He wasn't doing this because he was benevolent. He was doing this to gain favor in their eyes for his own benefit. And since the debtors benefited, they were happy to cooperate, even if it meant it was they were being unfair to the one they owed. Now... There's nothing at all redeemable about what this unrighteous manager does. There's nothing... uh, He has mismanaged his master's provisions and then he has continued to work the system for his own benefit at the expense of his master. And so, after Jesus has done saying this, you would expect when the master finds out about this for him to bring the hammer down on the steward. You expect the master to lay the smack down on him. But Jesus often surprises us in his parables, just like, again, the parable of the prodigal son. So in verse 8, his disciples had to be shocked to hear Jesus say, and his master praised the unrighteous manager because he had acted shrewdly. Now to those listening to Jesus, the master has been the victim. He's a rich man, but you feel a little bit sorry for him because he has been swindled, really. But now he just sounds stupid. This seems like a ridiculous response on the surface. But again, that's just on the surface. Note that he doesn't really praise him for wasting his resources. He doesn't praise him for the irresponsible manner in which he conducted himself. 
He doesn't praise him for what amounts to thievery. After all, Jesus does refer to him as the unrighteous manager, not righteous, unrighteous. The master praised him, then why? Because he acted shrewdly. The manager took advantage of an opportunity that he was given. He took advantage of the system he lived in to benefit himself. Now, now the debtors owed him. They pay the discounted rate to the master, and now they owe big favors to this unrighteous manager. They're obligated to him. So there would be no digging in his future, no begging. And, and when you take into consideration the size of those debts and the size of the discounts he gave, he was going to be able to receive more than enough favors. Just like the, the father uh, provided more than enough bread for his hired man. He was going to have more than enough to live on to last a lifetime. The master did not praise the way he did it. He praised the wisdom with which he carried out his plan. Now, that doesn't mean that the unrighteous steward, the unrighteous manager is someone to be followed as an example. Remember, he's unrighteous. And he's called that for a reason. So then why does Jesus tell this parable? Well, the application begins the second half of verse 8. What does he say there? For the sons of this age are more shrewd in relation to their own kind than the sons of light. The sons of this age are more shrewd in relation to their own kind than the sons of light. The sons of light are believers, those who've been made alive by God. We see the sons of light used several times in the New Testament in particular. So what does Jesus mean by that? He's saying that the unrighteous, that sinners, that unbelievers, are better at securing themselves in this present age than the righteous are at securing their rewards in the age to come. That's what he's saying. Those who are of this world are better at taking advantage of the world system to benefit themselves now than those whose citizenship as is in heaven are at securing their rewards in heaven where they will one day be. Jesus is saying to his disciples, you should be more shrewd, you should be more wise in preparing for eternity. You should be wise in preparing for eternity. You should be taking advantage of the opportunities you are given now. You know, smart business people work their tails off to increase their bottom line. Even foolish people who play the lottery, they play it all the time. Why? On the remote hope that for all they're playing day after day after day, one day they'll cash in. But those in Christ, Jesus is saying, His disciples are put to shame by the work others do to try to gain earthly rewards. And I say to you, Jesus says in verse 9, make friends for yourselves by means of the wealth of unrighteousness so that when it fails, they will receive you into the eternal dwellings. Those who don't know Him, Jesus is saying, often use their money, they use what they have to buy earthly friends. 
But he's telling his disciples, believers should be using their money, what they've been entrusted with, to buy heavenly friends. Not buying people's way into heaven, of course. Well, you can't do that. We can't do it. Only the blood of Christ saves. But what's Jesus' point? It's that we, beloved, who love Christ, those of us who have been saved by His grace through faith in Him, we ought to be using our earthly resources not for earthly benefits for ourselves because they always inevitably fail. No, we must use what God has entrusted us with here and now for kingdom purposes. We ought to be shrewd with what we have to accomplish kingdom goals as unbelievers are at accomplishing earthly goals. We ought to be wisely using all we have all we've been entrusted with by the Master to benefit His kingdom, to grow His kingdom, to glorify the Master. Heavenly rewards, not earthly rewards. He's saying that we ought to use our money so that even when it fails, even when it runs out, unbelievers make friends for themselves and then it's gone, but even when your money runs out, those heavenly friends you've bought with the resources that you used for the Master's glory, will receive you into the eternal dwellings. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth, Jesus says in Matthew 6, 19. Why? Because that is where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. What does He say? Earthly treasures always go away. But what does He say after that? Store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. In other words, what you put your money into shows where your heart is. As 21st century Americans, we... And no, no one's excluded here. We... we we live in an affluent society where even the poorest in our culture are among the richest in the world. And yet, what are we doing with our money? If, if we live to accumulate on earth, all we're doing is wasting now what we could acquire blessings with that will never cease to be. We need to be less concerned with our balance and more interested in our earthly or our heavenly reward, our eternal rewards. Jesus doesn't say we all have to give a certain amount. He says we all have to be faithful, faithful with what we have. Later in Luke, Luke 21, we'll see that he's going to praise a widow because she puts in what little she has, and it's all she has while the others coming in and around her before and after are putting in out of their excess. And here he says, verse 10, He who is faithful in a very little thing is faithful also in much. And he who is unrighteous in a very little thing is unrighteous also in much. He's answering a possible objection here. And the objection is, if I had more, I would give more. I've fallen into this trap myself 
before in my life. If I had more, I would give more. Even in Jesus' day, they claimed this. But, but he goes to the heart and basically says, it's what kind of character you have and not your life circumstances that determine your faithfulness. It's character and not circumstances that determine your faithfulness. Now, I know that things come up. I know that sometimes hard choices have to be made. I know that there are times when unforeseen circumstances bust things all up, bust all your plans up. I've had it happen to me. You've had it happen to you. But overall, what is Jesus saying here? He's saying that what God entrusts you with, you need to be faithful with it. He's saying your integrity before God has a lot to do with what you use, with what you've been, with how you use what you've been given. It's almost as if he's asking the question of the disciples: Will you be the unrighteous steward with all I'm giving you, or will you be faithful? Will you trust in wealth, or will you discover there is wealth in trust? Look at verses 11 and 12. Therefore, if you have not been faithful in the use of unrighteous wealth, who will entrust the true riches to you? And if you have not been faithful in the use of that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? What's Jesus saying here? He's saying, why do you expect God to bless and reward you if you sinfully waste your opportunity to be faithful in what you've been given? Why do you expect spiritual blessings, the true riches, for you and for your church and for your family when you're not being faithful with unrighteous wealth? That is money, property, measures of oil, measures of wheat, whatever. You know, on Facebook, if you're on Facebook, you've no doubt seen this. Click like and share and type amen and God will bless you. I pity the person who believes that's the case. I pity the person who thinks there's a quick end run to receiving in this world what God says will ultimately fail. Earthly riches will ultimately fail. They'll ultimately go away. He calls us to faithfulness. As I read it put, those who fail to invest in the work of redemption impoverish themselves forever. Those who fail to invest in the work of redemption impoverish themselves. The prodigal son learned that lesson. He squandered his estate on loose living, and and, and maybe you aren't engaging in anything like the immorality he was engaging in, and I, I sure hope not. I sure hope not. But we can be just as wasteful because if we're in Christ, you know, we ought to know better. Those who fail to invest in the work of redemption. And what about our redemption? What, what does the Bible say about that? First Peter 1, 18 and 19 puts it like this. Knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your feudal way of life. Money didn't buy you out of your feudal way of life. Inherited from your forefathers, he writes, but you were redeemed with precious blood as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. 
Knowing the sacrifice of the Son of God is the means by which our, the price of our sins was paid. How egregious an insult is it to God if we fail to invest in the work of redemption? What we put into winning others to Christ, beloved. What we put into missions. And when I say missions, I mean the actual proclamation of the gospel. What we put into missions ought to reflect our heart for Christ. In many ways it does reflect our, our heart for Christ. Either way. How highly do we esteem what Christ has done for us? And of course, you know, that might be the problem. Maybe what we really need is a greater appreciation of the blood of Christ. Maybe what we really need is a greater recognition of our own sin and what God did to remove that. If indeed we have repented and entrusted ourselves to Him. Jesus is saying, how you use what my Father has entrusted you with is a reflection of your trust in me. And then verse 13. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. You cannot serve God and wealth. God and money. In this election season, there's been a lot of talk, a lot of debate about the election being a binary choice between two bad choices. A binary choice, one or the other. Some say you have to choose one or else you're really choosing the other. I don't necessarily agree with that logic. But, but here Jesus really does give us a binary choice. God or money. You will put one over the other. You always will put one over the other. Which one will be on top? You know, it's like an umbrella. There's stuff over the umbrella and there's stuff on yeah. Which, which, which one's on top, raining, raining, trickling down on how you use the other? A lot of people, money's on top and it affects how they view God. Jesus says you have to put God on top and let that affect how you use money and by the way, how you use time, how you use all the resources you have, how you do everything. And note, he's not saying that being rich is evil. And I would never say that either. Being rich is not any more evil than being poor is evil. Being richer just means you've been given more with which to glorify God. It's a stewardship to be used for His glory. Being poor, whatever you have, you've been entrusted with to glorify God. Whatever we've been given, beloved, it's an opportunity for faithfulness. It's an opportunity to glorify God. It's an opportunity to show God how much we appreciate what He's done for us. When money rules in the heart, God does not. Where God rules in the heart, money will be used for His glory. How you use what the Father has entrusted you with is a reflection of your trust in His Son. Or as Martin Luther put it, a religion that gives nothing, costs nothing, and suffers nothing is worth nothing. What is it costing us to be Christians? 
I for one always want to be doing a better job, a better I want to do better at pleasing God because money is just one of these areas where it's so easy to make excuses. And I've made them in my life. Money is just one of these areas where it's 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 easy to justify doing a little bit less because there's always something urgent right around the corner. Nothing's more urgent than the blood of Christ. And that's what we need to remember. That's my prayer for me. That's my prayer for you. And I'll close this way. I was reading a sermon that someone preached on this text. He closed with the words of one of the greatest hymns that's ever been written, Be Thou My Vision. And I want to close the same way. Riches I heed not, nor man's empty praise. Thou, my inheritance, now and always. Thou and Thou only, first in my heart. High King of Heaven, my treasure, Thou art. Let's pray. Father, many, well, not many, we can all We can all get this way where we begin to look at you as our ticket. Our ticket out of hell and into heaven. And not our treasure. And yet your son has said where your treasure is there your heart will be also. Help us to esteem your precious blood in a manner worthy of its true worth. And Father, compel us by the Holy Spirit to manage what You have given us, what You've entrusted us with, not for mere earthly gain. Although again, Father, You tell us there's nothing wrong with earthly gain, but when that's our goal, it will always be temporary. Help us to manage what You've given us most for eternal glory, for eternal rewards, for things of eternal consequence. Help us take advantage of the opportunities we are given. Help us to, to, to make much of your kingdom. And if there be anyone here who has not treasured your Son as they ought, I pray even today, Father, that you would make them alive and that they would see that you are the precious jewels and they would repent of their sins and trust in You. But may we all, Father, be good stewards of what You entrust us with as we trust in You. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.